You ever walk in a room and um, maybe this happened to you as a child, and maybe your parents attended church, and you're walking down the hallway of your parents' home, and you happen to go by their bedroom, and you ever hear your parents praying for you? Maybe you come into a room where someone is mentioning your name in prayer. It's a very humbling thing. I've, I've had it happen a number of times, and walk into the cafe, for instance, before the services. Um, a prayer team gathers in there, and I walk into the cafe to pray with them. Sometimes they're in the middle of praying for me, and it just makes you want to shrink. I had that happen in Africa this last year when I was in Kenya in January and doing that pastor's conference for the, the Kenyan national pastors. And after I finished the conference, four days of teaching, one of the, the lead pastors asked if they could do something for me, and I was a little tenuous because I'd experienced some of the African food, and I thought maybe he's going to share some of the African food with me. And I didn't really like it that much, but I, I said, um, yeah, what did you have in mind? And he said, would you gather um, in the center of the room with us so that all the pastors that are here for the conference can pray over you? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know what it felt like to have 75 African pastors reach out and just begin to call the power of God down upon you. It was a really, really humbling experience. Can you imagine what it would be like for the disciples in the garden the night that Jesus is arrested to hear the Son of God praying for them? Let me take it one step further. Have you ever thought, when you look at John 17, if maybe you've never looked at it before, but today you're going to get the chance, when you look at John 17 and you read through the lens of what God intended, that Jesus is praying for you. I'm going to show that to you this morning. You're going to see the Son of God talk to God the Father on your behalf. And you'll know what it is to have someone praying for you, doing battle for you. So I'm going to invite you to go to John 17, chapter, uh, chapter 17, and verse 11 with me this morning. We left off verse 10 last week, only a few verses remaining, and then as Michael mentioned, next week we get into John chapter 18, and it is a, just an incredible, incredible narrative when we get into 18 about Jesus being arrested in the garden. So here's where we pick up in John chapter 17 and verse 11. Um, we're listening to God talking to God. And get your mind around that. And so Jesus is looking forward through time, looking beyond the first century, looking forward to this period of time, 2012, and on all the believers in that period of time between those 2,000 years. And he begins talking about us, and the departure is imminent, realize. He's literally within an hour of being arrested, if not a half hour. And it doesn't take that long to go through this prayer if you just read it, so you, you realize it immediately follows this prayer. He's about to step into the most painful, shameful death known to man. And he's got us on his heart. That's who we're, we're, we're reading that he's thinking about. Now, get this, frame it this way in verse 11. In the face of Jesus' absence, in the face of the fact that he's about to step out, he asked God the Father in this prayer to take up the role of protector over those who follow him because Jesus has been protecting up till this point. And now he's going to say, 
Father, would you now be their protector? So go with me to verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. There's only two times in the entire Bible where God's name is mentioned as Holy Father. It's a a title that belongs to God and God alone. And each of the two times that it's used, Jesus uses it, speaking of God the Father. Holy Father. And it's a title that sets God apart from everything else in creation. And he says in verse 11, keep them in your name. So the emphasis is on God's name. What is unique about God's name that sets the stage for this request? Well, in the Bible, every time you see a person's name used, it always identifies the character and the nature of that person, what their abilities are or what they're known for. So when you think of Isaac in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah had this little baby boy when they were in their 90s, and they named him Isaac because his name means laughter. You would laugh too if you had a baby when you were in your 90s. So they've got this baby, they name him laughter because it represents his character and nature. But Jesus, when he's born, his parents are told to name him Yahashua because it means salvation. See, the Bible attaches character to names. And so Jesus is saying, in your name, he's saying, in your character, because of your nature. It it reveals something about who God is. And this request that he's making is all-encompassing. It means keep them from falling away. And and keep them from evil doctrine. And keep them from sorrow because I'm about to leave them. All these things that Jesus has been doing, he's been the protector for them. So here's how it's rendered in the Greek language. Not on the screen, but just hear this. This The literal rendition is, keep them in full adherence to your character. Who you are. The God of provision. The God of protection. Why? Because there's a period of danger that's about to approach. Soldiers are on their way. And the temptation is that the disciples will run and scatter to the winds. So Jesus is asking God, in the midst of this danger, protect them. Why? He says that they may be one even as we are. Now we're going to get into that in a minute because Jesus asked that for four times in the remaining verses here. That we would be one. We're His followers asking that we would be one even as God the Father is one with Christ. Now, this is not a unity by legislation. It's not, thus saith the Lord, you will be one. That's not what's going on. He's talking about they would be one as we are. He's talking about nature, your natural inclination as believers in Christ to be one with another. Let me put it this way for you. as the best way I can frame it. I'm going to use women for an example. Um, I happen to have the microphone, so I can do that. So, daughters here. You don't always get along with your moms, right? You don't have to put your hand up, but I see you winking, okay? It doesn't matter what age. Daughters don't always get along with their moms. I could use men. Men don't, dads and sons don't always get along. But daughters, you don't always get along with your mom. Sometimes there's friction. Yet, there is a common bond. We, we use the phrase in the English language, a, a bond that where blood is thicker than water, And the bond is so tight, it's a natural uh, connection point. 
So that even in the times when there is friction between a mother and a daughter, and there's times of disagreement, there's also that knowledge that there's a tight bond between those two, and they come back together again. That bond is being referred to here by Jesus when he talks about that we're believers in his name and we're bound to him. The binding in the blood. And Jesus is saying, just as you, Father, and I are one, I want this church to be one. And so he talks about keeping us. Now let's look very closely at that in verse 12 because he uses two different words here. How does God the Son keep the disciples and he's asking God the Father to do the same thing for you? Well, first word that he uses here is the word tereo. When he says, I've been keeping them, now look very closely at the definition. To guard from loss or injury by keeping the eye upon. So the literal interpretation is, Jesus has been watching the disciples, and he's asking God the Father now to begin keeping his eye upon the followers, those who believe in him. And then he uses the second word, I guarded them. What is this word? This is the word fulasso. They're very closely related, but this one talks about being on guard to preserve, to be aware. And that's talking about from external attack. Why? Why is Jesus aware that there's external forces coming against those who follow after him? Now remember, Jesus is leaving. We're still here. Have you been exposed to temptation this week? You've been exposed to hostility this week? The disciples were. Jesus is gone. Temptation is still there. Hostility is still there. And so he's aware that we're going to be facing these kind of things, and he wants the Father to preserve us. How precious are you? How precious are you in the sight of God that he watches over us even now? We're told according to the Bible that Jesus prays for us even now. He serves as the intercessor going before God the Father on our behalf. It's the role of the great high priest. So if this particular week, maybe at this very moment in time, you feel like the Lord is a long way away and he's forgotten you, I encourage you later today to read Romans chapter 8. It's not in your notes this morning. You're just going to have to write it down yourself. You're not going to see it on the screen. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 through 39, it will remind you of how close God the Father is for you and how close he is to you all the time. Now, Jesus said that he did such a good job guarding the disciples and keeping them that not one of them perished except Judas. Now, does that mean Jesus was batting 90%? No, Jesus is never batting 90%. What it means is that Judas had the uniform, but he wasn't on the team. He wasn't part of the same group. He looked like one of them. But Jesus said this is so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus is never batting 90%. It was not an accident to lose Judas. Let's move forward into verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So the departure is imminent. He even says it himself. I come to you now. And literally, it's within hours. And I want my joy to be made full in them. So here's something that's really clear. A deathbed request from Jesus is that you would know his legacy of joy. Jesus spoke of it that way, that joy would be his legacy to his followers. 
Um, when I was working for years in ministry at Youth Haven Ranch, the, the founder of Youth Haven was Maury Carlson, and uh, Maury is my actual uncle. And I remember even from as a child, Uncle Maury saying to me, you know those Christians that look like they were raised on a lemon? What is it with those people? Uh, just think about that. This is the reason he said that there's individuals who say they have the joy of Christ, but their face is all wrinkled up because they look like they have no joy. And Jesus is saying, I want them to know my joy and that it would be full in them. So how can you have that joy and have it be full in you? Well, first of all, you understand that God the Father has his eye upon you. That's what Jesus has asked God the Father to do. And we know that God the Father hears Jesus. And we're told according to the Bible, he has his eye even on the sparrow. He even knows the numbers of the hair on your head. For some of you, that takes a lot less counting. For me, it's getting to be a lot less counting as well. But he knows us that well. And so Jesus is saying, not only do I have the Father's protection on me, but we also have Jesus as our intercessor, going before God the Father on our behalf. And so that produces joy in you. Dr. John MacArthur summed this up really well. I want you to see his quote. He's looking at this passage. This is what he had to say about this. The Lord's use of my indicates that this was not just any kind of arbitrary happiness. It was his joy, both that which was based in him and which he himself experienced. It was the joy that was set before him, joy that was not founded on immediate circumstances, but on the external, eternal purposes of God. It was joy that came not from momentary happiness, but from knowing that the Father was pleased with his perfect obedience. I look at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word. You've got that in your hand this morning. If you've got God's Bible, you've got God's Word in your hand. This is the Word Jesus is talking about. I have given them your Word. And this Word that you hold, that you open up every week, hopefully you open it up every day, is nothing less than the revelation of God the Father. And Jesus has said, I have given it to them. Now remember, Jesus has been praying that you would know His joy, that you would know His protection, that you would know what it is to live a full life in Him. And then He says, I'm praying that you would keep them safe. We're going to ask ourselves this question. Safe from what? The dangers are real, church. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But let's ask ourselves this question. Why did Satan in the Garden of Eden do his best to destroy Adam and Eve? Why did he try and take them out of the game? Let's think about who they were to God the Father. Adam and Eve, intimate fellowship with God the Father. They walked with God in the cool of the day, we're told. God's special creation. They belonged to Him. And they had His Word. God said to Adam, this tree you will not eat of. Eve, you will not eat of this or you will die. Did they have God's Word? Yes, they had God's Word. They walked with God. They heard God talk to them. You have God's Word. And because you are intimately loved by God, you have fellowship with God, you belong to Him through Jesus Christ, as we side with this revelation of God, it infuriates Satan because he's the prince and the power of the air, the ruler of this world. And the very fact that you've received the message of God differentiates you from the rest of the world who stand opposed to God. So just like Adam and Eve became a target for Satan, you are a target for Satan. 
And that's what Jesus understood because this kind of a radical contrast between the way God has called you to live and the way that the world wants you to live, it it demands hatred on their part because the world wants to see conformity to its viewpoint. I only have to take you to the news headlines of this past week when you look at what happened with, and I always mention their name wrong, either Chick-fil-A or Chick-fil-A restaurant. Okay, you've seen in the headlines where they took a stand for the things of God and said, this is who we are as an organization. We're merely quoting God's word. The anger and the antagonism that has come against that chain of restaurants because they stood for God's position has caused mayors of major cities to say, you will not even open a business in this city. Is that hatred? That's what Jesus said you would see. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you stand for the things of God, you believe God's word to be authoritative, you will encounter the wrath of the world because the world demands conformity to its viewpoint. And you're seeing it lived out in your lifetime. So how does Jesus respond to that? Go with me to verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So there's some tension here, New Hope. There's tension in that passage. This is about us. The victory of Jesus means the defeat of Satan. But it also means that Satan still at this period of time, even though he has been judged, the judgment has not been carried out. And he has power to inflict terrible damage if we are not rescued from the attacks of the evil one. That's what Jesus is looking for. So when you look at verse 15 and 16, you're seeing the cosmic nature of the battle being played out here. And Jesus is fully aware of it right up to the point of his death. He knows what's behind this. He understands what's going on. So he says, I do not ask you to take them out. That means you don't get to be extracted from the environment. You're part of this world. You live in it. So we remain in this world for this reason, to maintain a witness to the truth. And if God didn't want you here for that reason, he would remove you. So you are a witness to the things of God in your life. So here's what you're forced to ponder. I am too. I'm forced to ponder the implications of this conversation between God and God. God is talking to God. And there's implications here. We are not permitted the luxury of compromise with a world that is intrinsically evil. Nor do we have the safety of disengagement. Jesus has said, I want you, Father, not to take them out, but to keep them from the evil one. Because there's no checking out, church. We don't get a sideline position. On the contrary, believers are here to reach the lost with the gospel. Did you know there's one thing that you get to do here on planet Earth that you never get to do in heaven? You will never in eternity get to lead another individual into faith in Jesus Christ because everybody that's there will be believers. You only get to do that. You get the privilege of that one time, and that's on planet Earth during this lifetime. You won't be doing it in eternity. So you've been given a privilege that even the angels don't have, a privilege to introduce people to who Jesus Christ is. That's why Michael was emphasizing what we're talking about next week when we get into chapter 18. You've got friends, coworkers, family members who wonder about this thing, this story. What's going on here? Why did Jesus have to die? Bring them next week. We're going to expose it to them. We want people to understand this is real. This is not just playthings. There is no gray area. The Bible is very black and white. Move forward with me. 
as we look into um, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify, sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now, we see that word sanctify, and it sounds really churchy, doesn't it? You don't hear that word very often in the course of your normal week, I'm thinking. You don't go to the office and you hear somebody say, well, I'm sanctified, right? Okay, it's a very churchy word. Matter of fact, it came up in our conversations last night during the Saturday night service. Because in, in church circles, we, we use churchy words in church settings, but how does that really play out in my life during the course of the week? How am I sanctified in the truth? Because that's what Jesus is asking for. Let's think of it this way. God is other. God is distinct, separated from all the rest of creation because He is holy. And so the angels cry out in His presence, Holy, holy, holy. And they echo it throughout eternity, back and forth, off the walls of heaven, we're told. So much so that the temple in heaven actually shakes and rumbles when they cry out, holy, holy, holy. But God sees you as holy as well. What is holy? It is to be sanctified, to be set apart. So God says that we are set apart. So in Leviticus, when you say, when you read God saying, I want you to be holy as I am holy, what is he actually talking about? It's this word that you'll see on the screen, the word hagiadzo or hagias. Hagiadzo, this, this is the definition for it. To separate, to set apart, to make holy. You have a role in the sanctification process. Jesus is asking God to sanctify you, to set you apart for his purposes. Here's the question that came up last night when we were having our Q&A in the Saturday night service. How, How does that play out in my life? How am I sanctified through the course of a typical week? You have the power over the remote control on your television. You have the power over what comes into your mailbox, the magazines, the things that arrive. You have the power over the conversations that you engage in throughout the course of the week. Whether they be uplifting and God edifying or whether they be full of gossip and evil. That's the role of sanctification. God working on your life, pressing upon you so that you decide, I'm going to be Christ-like or I'm going to be world-like. And God sanctifies you, sets you apart, but that sanctification process does not make you a robot. You do play a role in it as well. As a result, believers are so changed in our lives that we're separated from evil to God. And that's not just pastors. That's not just missionaries. We're talking about the body of Christ. God sees you as holy. He sees you through the eyes of Christ, through the work of the blood of Jesus. And the evil one aggressively is trying to derail you from the work of sanctification that God is doing in your life. That's why Jesus is praying about that. So you have the Holy Spirit now working in your life to help with this sanctification process. But Jesus recognized there's one more step to it. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So since this word right here, this thing that you hold in your hand is truth, what does it provide for you? It provides God's unchanging standard. 
which the world recoils against. But it's God's standard laid out for you in black and white. Now, when you're set apart, when you're pulled apart from the world, and you're told that you're to live as one who is holy to God, hagias, you must be set apart for a reason. What are you set apart for? You are set apart to be sent. Now, you don't have to go to Vietnam. You don't have to go to Thailand. You don't have to go to Africa. You can do it right here in your workplace in the metropolitan Lansing area. Because to be set apart is to be sent. It's missional at its core. So that's why Jesus says, as you sent me, I also have sent them. So the purpose of sanctification is to go out. It's the continuation of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent. He sent Jesus. And Jesus is leaving. So he's sending us. Now, I've sat right where you sat. I grew up in church. I've, I've been a, a child that was raised in church, probably had a pacifier in my mouth sitting in my mom's arms in a pew when I was little. I don't remember it, but I'm sure I was. But I grew up in church, and I remember a period of time in my life thinking, well, yeah, that, that's great for the pastors, people that have been to Bible college that have all kinds of knowledge about the Bible, but how does that apply to me? I guarantee you, you have the equipment to do what you're being asked to do by Jesus If you didn't have it, he wouldn't send you out. And what is the equipment? It is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us the authority in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 says, I've been given all authority on heaven and earth, and I'm sending you out with that authority. So just as Jesus came to this planet with God's message of love and forgiveness, we proclaim the same. And just as he came into danger, we're going to encounter the same thing. But just as he accomplished victory through the resurrection, we're going to experience the same thing because of what he did. Go with me to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I'm going to stop right there. Look at the very top of verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also. You know who the those are? It's you. As a matter of fact, you could remove the word those and insert your name in there. But for Sarah. But for John. But for Rachel. But for Tim. But for Mark. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's all those who came to Christ as a result of the beginning work of the disciples. From the littlest kids sitting here in the front row to the oldest adult sitting in the auditorium, you came to Christ as a result of the work of the disciples following out what Jesus asked them to do, and the church exploded around the world. That's what Jesus is talking about. So he's looking forward in time. He's introduced another group here. And you have been for eternity on the heart of the Savior. I hope you remember that from last week. We're told that if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, that our name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. So that means for eternity, you have been on the heart of God. And he knew that you would belong to him. And as a result, he says in verse 21, I want them all to be one, that they may all be one. So Jesus is praying for believers to be to what end? To the end, when you look at verse 21 and verse 23, you see to the end. 
that the world may believe, so that the world may know. That tells me that our sign out on Hazlitt Road, when it says, New Hope, a biblical community, is more than just a sign on the street, church. It's an advertisement to everyone in the metro area who drives up and down the road that this group of people own it. They believe what they say. And when they come in the door, they better see the same thing that we've got on the sign out on the street. We're a biblical community. There's a unity of love here. Now, I know that if, like me, you've been in churches where you see an absence of that unity and you wonder what's going on because Jesus is praying that we would be one, that there would be unity to the degree that it would be observable so that the world would believe. That's part of the witness that we have as a church. Now, he goes one step further. He says, to the degree that they may be perfected in unity. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. You ever been to a church where they're perfected in unity? I'd like to know if you have, because I've never seen it. Okay, so Jesus is asking that we be perfected in unity. And in our Western English thinking minds, we're immediately going to the point where everybody gets along. It's a big love-in. And they're happy and they're all singing kumbaya. All right, that's not what's going on here. There is a difference of opinion. You, you have a different personality than I do. You see things differently than I do. So what's Jesus talking about when he says, I want them to be one? Well, if you have your Bible and you don't mind flipping over, go to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to show you this oneness that Jesus is talking about. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, and he specifically talks about what it is to have a church that is of one mind. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, it's not going to be up on the screen. Let me just read this to you. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So if you picked up the bulletin when you came in this morning, you find your study notes inside there, and if you look on the right-hand side of your study notes, you see what's going up on the screen next, that there are seven things that the Holy Spirit produces in a Christ-honoring church that you can identify as a church that is of one mind. So let's look at this list here. This is really important. This is foundational stuff to what Jesus was asking us to be. What is number one? Number one, there is one body, the body of Christ, which is comprised of all believers. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit, apart from, one, from whom no one can believe. Number three, there is one hope the promised eternal inheritance. Number four, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Number five, there is one faith, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Number six, there is one baptism, the believer's public confession of faith. Number seven, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, the one true God. That's what it means to be part of a church in which there's oneness. Now, think this. The disciples are hardly ready to turn the world upside down. As you're going to see next week, one of them actually pulls a sword out and tries to knock off the ear. Actually, he tries to cut the guy's head open and he misses and hits the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. 
that's not a person you want going out telling people Jesus is love. That's Peter's reaction, though. He's so afraid of what's happening, he doesn't know what else to do, so he pulls out a sword. And if he had a gun, he'd probably shoot a gun. And the rest of the disciples run and scatter to the wind. The disciples are hardly ready to turn the world upside down. Yet in Acts 17, we're told that's exactly what they did as a result of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So you've got this group of guys who are hardly ready to be a force for Christ, and Jesus is praying for them in complete power and confidence that God will rain down upon them. And his prayer is so powerful. Jesus' prayer is so powerful that as a result of the release of God's will upon their lives, they become so successful in advancing the kingdom that they begin a chain of witness that continues on to this very day, July 29th, 2012. We are evidence of the work of the disciples doing what Jesus asked them to do. Our church, our success here is the result of Jesus' prayer in verse 20. For those who would believe in the future, we're living out his prayer. And he said in verse 22 that they may all be one. So, here's what I know. We don't do things like other churches. I don't wear a tie when I teach. We don't do communion like other churches. We do baptism different than other places. Some churches sprinkle individuals. We happen to immerse people. We don't take an offering. Well, we have offering boxes. But we do things different than other churches. But here's what we do do. We do preach the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. And that is the union of the saints. That is what Jesus is asking for. That we would be of one mind, that our purpose would be the same, so that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are one body. So we may wonder, why did denominationalism exist and where did it come from? Well, it came from people having different opinions about how church should be done. And people came up with different methodology. That's where it comes from. But here's the truth. The church's unity is the foundation of its evangelism. That's why Jesus said, I want them to be one so that the world will know that they belong to me. Here's the opposite of it. Think of it this way. Who would want to be part of a hypocritical group of individuals where there's constant fighting and strife and antagonism and bickering? Nobody wants to be part of that. I'm convinced that's what was going on in the church in Ephesus, and that's why Paul wrote what he did, the book of Ephesians, to them, because they were fighting amongst each other. Look with me up on the screen, Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, implore you, I beg you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. See, even in the first century, there was bickering going on. So Jesus understood his church, and he knew what the temptation was that we would be ununified. And that's why his prayer is so powerful to bring us together. This is where he wraps it up, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me from before the foundation of the world. So when he says that they may see me, where's Jesus going to be? 
anybody. Heaven, that they may see me. So what's he praying for? Who's the they? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Jesus, God the Son, asking God the Father that these believers that have yet to be born will join Him in eternity. Does God deny the request of God the Son? Absolutely not. And if every single part of His prayer is playing out, all the other aspects of Jesus' prayer are being accomplished, you know this one will one day be also. Now, we see this statement Jesus has made in verse 24, and we recognize this. Let me read it to you very slowly again. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Here's the truth. We have done nothing to warrant that kind of a request from God the Son to God the Father. It's a staggering request. It's overwhelming privilege because the truth of redemption is found in Ephesians 2.4. You and I have been saved by grace and by grace alone. Ephesians 2.4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Go to the very end of that verse. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. What's the ages to come? The future. The future We get to see the surpassing riches of Jesus played out in our life because we're going to see him as he is, according to 1 John 3, 2. We get to see him in the future. It's the ultimate hope of all of Jesus' followers. Here's his final sentence before they arrest him. Verse 25. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Just imagine the disciples not knowing that Jesus was going to begin praying for them. It's the night before the arrest. As a matter of fact, by this point in time, the torches are in the hands of the soldiers and they're on their way to the garden. Swords are in their hand. They think they're going to pick up a criminal. You're going to see that played out next week. And in the midst of that, Jesus goes before the Father and lifts up his eyes to heaven, as you saw last week, and begins praying for you and praying for me. That should make your week. It's the unfolding. It's the apex of history. Everything that was planned in eternity past is being lived out in this moment. And Jesus goes to his knees to pray for you. I'm going to ask God right now that he would seal this truth in your heart, that you would remember this this week as you go forward, that God the Father is doing battle on your behalf, and he has his eye on you. It's an intimidating thought. At the same time, it's a comforting thought, right? Yeah, okay, so let's remember that as we go to prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts are greatly encouraged to know that you number the hairs on our head that you have such intimate care and concern for us that even in the moment that your son was about to be executed, you demonstrate your love for us by pouring out 
this great passage that's been written down for us when John was such an old man. That we can look at it now, Father, in 2012 and be reminded, how great is your love for us? That you want us to know your joy and that it would be full in us because you have your eye on us. You are our protector. You are the one who keeps us. Father, keep us from the attack of the evil one so that we can carry out your work. But at the same time, Father, we ask that you would empower us. We take on this afternoon. We don't even know what it holds. Tomorrow we step into another week and Monday begins drudgery for some people. God, I ask that you not only be the comforter, but you be the one who would remind them that your joy is made complete in us. And as we take on these days, we should be speaking boldly of who you are and what you did in us. So Father, I ask that you would translate that same boldness to courage and cause us to have the courage to invite people to come next week and to hear your story. Father, I ask that you would make that very real in our hearts this week as we move forward. God, I ask all this in the name of the one who redeemed us and bought us with his blood, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.